0: Father, we ask as your humble servants, as your children, that you would speak to us by your spirit today and illuminate Christ more clearly to us, that you would reveal to us such a great a hope as we have in Christ, that you would rid us of all distractions and that you would thrust us deeper into this ocean of hope and of joy that we have in you. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there is a reason why many of the most uh, popular movies in Hollywood have some form of a saviour in it. Uh, Something about this saviour narrative just captures the hearts of humanity in all cultures whether it is a love story of a lonely girl or guy who seems to be depressed and lost in life until some figure comes in, some handsome, beautiful, ravishing figure comes into their lives and just revives their heart and restores them. Or the countless movies we have where humanity is doomed to destruction and uh, it is only when a saviour figure comes in to avert the crisis and save the day. Um, all of the uh, Marvel movies, the superhero movies we have through generations and generations. We love this idea of a saviour narrative. Uh, there's something within all of us, whether you're a Christian or not, that finds this saviour story very appealing and very attractive. What I want us to do today is look at this passage as a story. For it is a story, but I want us to approach this passage today as a a particular story, a story which tells both humanity's greatest problem and the greatest solution to that problem. And in this story that we will read through in Deuteronomy chapter 9, there are six particular scenes of the story that we will work through. So with that framework, as we look at the first scene in this story, we see a stubborn and rebellious people. This is the opening scene to this story, a stubborn and rebellious people. In chapter nine, verses seven to eight, Moses is reminding the people how they provoked the Lord to wrath in the wilderness. And he says, From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that He was ready to destroy you. Remember the story of God's people, which we've gone through. They are under hard slavery for almost 400 years in Egypt, and God comes in to deliver them from this land of slavery so that they might they might be his people. Remember last week, they might be his treasured possession uh, out of this land of slavery into a land of abundance, into a land of good things. But in this story, uh, like a bunch of five-year-olds in the backseat of a car, like 10 minutes into a road trip, they start grumbling and complaining. They start saying, there's no water, Moses. Where are we going? Are we there yet? What's happening? We don't have any food. They even say things like, it would have been better for us to just stay in slavery in Egypt. At least there we had some food. And even after they see great acts of deliverance, like water streaming out of a rock, to satisfy the thirst of the people and bread raining down from heaven even after these incredible things. The people still commit this act of idolatry. In verse 12, Moses recalls this after reminding them how he was, he was up on the mountain with God, fasting from all water and food for 40 days. So he was struggling on behalf of the people to receive God's law and he says, In verse 12, after that, the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. This is after God had been giving the law and then all of a sudden he sees an act of absolute rebellion happening. The people make a golden calf. They don't know where Moses has gone in their impatience. They say to Aaron, who's the high priest, Aaron, make us a God that we can see. We can't see this God anymore. We can't see Moses, this man who is working on behalf of God. So you just make us a God that we can see. Make us a calf. Make God our way so that we can worship him. And remember that this is after they have heard God's word thundering from the mountain. Literally saying, do not make a carved image. And they say, yeah, you got it, God. We'll do whatever you want. We'll do whatever you want. And then just moments later, what do they do? They make a carved image. They make a golden calf. How quickly they demonstrate that they are a a stubborn and rebellious people. And this leads us into the next scene of our story, which is one of an angry God. In verse 13, Moses says, recalls what God said in response to the people's rebellion. And God says, I've seen this people and behold, it is a stubborn people. He says, let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you, Moses, I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. And this is not a pleasant scene in the story for us because it reminds us that God is an angry God when sin is present. When wickedness is present, God is angry against that. And here we see the passion God has for his, uh, well, for reverence and for righteousness among his people whom he has already uh, saved out of slavery and calls them to reflect his image to the surrounding nations. We even read in verse 20 that God was so angry with Aaron, who is his high priest, his chosen instrument to represent him toward the people. God was so angry that he was ready to destroy him. And as we read the Exodus account of this, the original account of this, we know that as a result of this sin, God eventually says to the people, Uh, through Moses, I'm no longer going to go with you into the land. He says, I'll send my angel ahead of you, but I'm not going with you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. The sin has so damaged the relationship with God that he withdraws his presence. He withdraws from them. The people are cut off. And we read in Exodus 33 that they mourn greatly because of this. They feel the distance, they feel the separation. And now at perhaps the lowest point, this is the part of the story, the part of the movie, if you will, where it's a low point, it's a depressing scene. The people are in shame before their God who is burning with anger towards them. But at this low point, we turn to a very promising scene. And in this next scene, there is a new role in the story that becomes clear to us, and that is the role of the mediator. So in verses 18 to 19, we read how Moses immediately lays face down before the Lord after he sees the rebellion of the people and God's anger toward them. And again, for another 40 days and 40 nights. So this is the second time. He's already spent 40 days and 40 nights up there. And after the rebellion, he actually then goes up and spends another 40 days and 40 nights Uh, laying before the Lord, fasting because of all the sin the people had committed. And Moses says of this, I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me in that time also. See, if this story was without Moses, if this character of the mediator got cut out of the story, it would be a totally depressing story. It would basically be God graciously saves the people out of slavery. They whinge and complain. Uh, God, in His mercy, gives them instructions for how they are to live. Now that He has saved them out, Uh, the people choose to then make their own version of God and just rebel against Him, and then God destroys them. And that's it. No more Israel. No more people. That's the end of the story. We have a very depressing story, but that's not what happens because there is a mediator. Because there is someone who steps in between God and the people. And this leads us to our next scene where we see the work of this mediator more clearly. As we look at Moses' intercession, it's really interesting because it's not as if Moses actually sticks up for the people when he stands in between them. You know, it's not like Moses says to God, Hey, God, they're not that bad. You remember what you were like when you were younger? Surely you were a bit rebellious, you know, just teenage years, whatever it is. It's it's not like Moses tries to actually excuse them and says, just they're just learning, they're just learning about what it's like to live in the wilderness. He's not like that at all. He's totally on the same page as God in recognizing that the people are sinful and rebellious. In verse 27, we read how Moses mediates and intercedes. He says, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin. He's saying, Yes, they're wicked. Yes, they're sinful, but please don't think about that. Think about the promises you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So instead of trying to convince God that they're not all that bad, Moses actually upholds the character of God toward God, he upholds his reputation. In verse 28, we read Moses telling God, saying, God, what if the people back in Egypt say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he has hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in wilderness. So Moses is saying here, what will the Egyptians think? It'll ruin your reputation. Don't do it, God. Think about your reputation. Now, as a bit of a side point in this story, It must be said that it is not as if God actually forgets about his reputation. It's not like God says, oh, you're right, Moses, what was I thinking? It's not as if God actually forgets. It's not as if uh, Moses changed God's mind. Whenever we come across passages in Scripture where it seems like that, we must remember that Scripture makes it very clear that God is immutable, which means that he is unchanging. He is always the same. But what these... Stories are there for, is to reveal something to us about God in a way that makes sense to us. And what this particular encounter reveals to us is that God is concerned with His glory and His name. He is concerned with His reputation. This story is bringing it out for us. So Moses' mediatory work here is primarily to bring before God God's own good character and His faithful promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob because Moses knows that is the only grounds by which the people will be delivered is if God sticks to His good character which, praise God, He always does. It will be God's pure mercy based on His good character and faithfulness that the people will be spared. And so after this mediatory work of Moses upholding God's character toward him, saying, as if to say, God, remember how good you are. Remember that you can never not be good. Remember your faithfulness. And this leads us into our second to last scene, which is the scene of the crisis being averted. Uh, That scene of relief, where the danger is gone. So through Moses' intercession, God's wrath is averted, though God still punishes them, Uh, the situation could have been much worse. So God's wrath was so against the people that he would have wiped them out. God would have wiped the people out completely had it not been for his mercy. And not only that, but through Moses' intercession god's presence stays with the people this is a wonderful thing remember how the effects of the people's rebellion was that god withdrew his presence from them he he threatened them saying i'm not going with you anymore send my angel but you are stiff-necked people i cannot stay with you their sin had separated them but in exodus 33 we read how moses intercedes yet again for the people and he says if your presence will not go with us god Don't bring us in, there's no point. If you're not going with us, this is hopeless. And God in his mercy says, my presence will go with you, I will give you rest. He reassures him and says, yes, I will go with you. I have restored the relationship, I will go with you. The crisis of punishment and separation from God has been averted. And this leads us into the closing scene of a renewed and restored family. And in this story, uh, we get just a glimpse of this, uh, of this theme of a renewed and restored family. It's not a full picture. I actually sometimes find this frustrating in movies where I want to see the full picture of reconciliation. Like if there's a guy and a girl separated, I don't want to just be left assuming that they got together. I wanna see them together and have closure and satisfaction. But in this story, uh, we get just a glimpse of it. We kind of get hints of God's intention. We get a foreshadowing, you might say, of God's intentions for his people. And this is from verse 29. And also we see a bit of it in verse 26 as well, where uh, it's really in Moses' mediatory work. And he says, uh, these are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. He's saying, these are, this is your family, God, your people, your heritage, your inheritance. Moses says, is, Israel is your child. We are your people. Though stiff-necked and rebellious, Israel was God's people. He had chosen them. In Hosea 11, this same theme is there where God refers to Israel as my child whom I brought out of Egypt. This family picture is seen elsewhere all throughout scripture. I think of particularly Isaiah, Isaiah 54, where the Lord says, The Lord has called you, Israel, like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. That's how God thinks toward his people in familial terms. So this story ends by pointing to the goal of God's election of Israel, which is that they would be a renewed and restored family. Now, this story is pointing to a bigger story. You may have clued onto that. And the bigger story, the one that is much bigger than this that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 9, it follows a very similar pattern. Uh, It is a story that includes all of this story that we have just gone over, but it extends it so that it encapsulates all of humanity and all of history. And in this story, we see the same six scenes. Our story starts with a stubborn and rebellious people. So just as the story of Israel shows a stubborn and rebellious people, the story of humanity as a whole Shows of people who not only rebel against God, but who are absolutely content to live in complete ignorance of Him. We see that in our lives. I certainly saw that in my life for the first 22 years. Absolutely content to live in complete ignorance of God, not a thought whatsoever for Him. And just like the Israelites, we whinge and complain. We try and make God based on our own understanding in a way that suits our preferences and makes us feel more comfortable. We like to craft him in that way. Throw out the bad, keep the good. And this is the disease of sin which has so plagued us since the fall. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It's in our nature ever since the fall. So that's the opening scene of our story, this uh, depressing scene of rebellion and stubbornness. And this leads us into our next scene, which is of an angry God. Again, God is angry against sin. Psalm 5, 5 to 6 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. We have the disease of sin within us and it brings God's wrath upon us. Sin uh, brings God's anger toward that because He is a just judge who must punish it. We, we saw how Israel was stubborn and rebellious And their sin distanced themselves from God. And likewise, our sin has created this gaping chasm which separates us from God. The depressing diagnosis of humanity that Paul gives in Ephesians 2 is that we have no hope and we are without God in this world. No hope whatsoever, totally separated from God, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, promise. We are totally separate and cut off. And at this point in our story, this is the low point. This is the low point of our story. Total separation from God because of our sin. Complete ignorance toward God because we are dead in that sin. So we don't even think of God. And God's wrath ready to be poured out on our rebellion. And then the beautiful turning point in our story, the mediator. In comes Christ, the mediator. Just as Moses stood between God and man in order to intercede for the people and avert God's wrath Jesus comes in to mediate he comes in to bridge that gaping chasm and notice the difference between how we would understood we would understand common mediation and the mediation which Christ brings so we would understand common mediation we have two parties. And then there's this objective mediator who's trying to sort of bridge the gap between two. They're neither for or against either. They're just trying to create resolution. But the mediation that Christ brings is God himself, the other party, coming to mediate. It would be like if you had those two parties and an objective mediator, that objective mediator just bouncing, just gone. And then all of a sudden, one of the parties says, you know what, I'm going to lay aside all of my uh, rights, everything that I hold here, and I am going to come and bridge that gap and mediate between us. I will do whatever it takes to bring reconciliation between us. That is an incredible mediation. And the key difference between the way Moses mediates and the way Christ mediates is because Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Moses was simply a man, a faithful man, but only a man. Whereas the mediator we have is fully God and fully man. So Jesus becomes the mediator who can know and represent both parties fully because he is both God and man. Hebrews 3 explains that Moses was faithful over God's house. So the author of Hebrews is making the same comparison, saying, Uh, Moses was faithful over God's house as a servant, but Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son. See, Israel knew Moses was a faithful man, but he was simply a man. But Jesus is a son. And so we have boldness because our mediator does not approach God. He does not approach our father as just a servant hoping for mercy, he actually approaches the father as a son with all of the rights and status as a son. That is totally different to have the son coming to the father on your behalf saying, father, treat them as you would me. I have stepped in their place. This is our mediator who steps in for us. And now this leads us to the scene where we see his work the mediators work. So Christ in his mediation, it is not simply uh, God coming down to sort of stand in for pitiable humanity, you know, kind of saying, just let them off the hook. Look at them. They're so pathetic. Just uh, let them off the hook. It's not like that at all. Christ mediates by entering fully into The depths of humanity, entering so fully that he would live, be born as a baby, live as a child, a toddler, a teenager, facing all of the temptations that we all do. And he is able to intercede for all people in all situations because he has entered fully into the depths of humanity. He has entered fully into the depths of all of our lives in that sense. Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Just think of that. You don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize. When you are depressed, when you are weak, you have a Savior who is totally able to sympathize with every thought that you are going through. Who knows? Isn't that so comforting? You know how when you have friends, well-meaning friends, that might say, I know how you feel, but you're kind of thinking, I don't think you do. I don't think you've ever been through this, but we can never say that to Jesus. He knows exactly. So when he says, I know, he knows. He knows what it is like. He has experienced death, the death of uh, his beloved friend, Lazarus. He has experienced the weeping of loved friends over that death. He has experienced it all. And so he knows. The second half of that verse in Hebrews 4 says, Christ in every respect Has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Think of that. In every respect, in every way, Christ was tempted. Every temptation that we face, he has been tempted. It says, every respect, leaving nothing out of that. Where we fail in those temptations, he succeeded. And he does this as our mediator. And just as Moses upheld the character of God, just as Moses upheld God's character toward him, Jesus likewise does this. He upholds the glory of God in His mediatory work. Think of His high priestly prayer right before He goes to the cross in John 17. He says, "'Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You, since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work which You gave Me to do.'" Jesus says, I glorified you, Father. I do exactly as the Father tells me. I live in obedience to him. I stick by his requirements, which reflect his good character. Jesus lived a life of absolute obedience to the Father, pleasing him in every way. And here is the wonderful thing. He did that as our representative. He did that as our mediator, stepping into our place. And this brings us to the next scene the crisis averted, the scene of relief. Because of the work of Christ, specifically His work on the cross, the wrath of God is completely satisfied as Jesus takes it upon Himself. God's anger towards sin is no longer directed toward us because Christ has stood in our place, has absorbed that wrath, that was on us, that was heavy upon us. And not only that, but because of Christ's life of complete obedience to the Father on our behalf as He restored humanity. We, by faith, receive the righteousness of Christ. We receive that life of obedience toward the Father because remember, He has done this as our representative and we are now brought in Christ. That's what it means when The Bible constantly talks about being in Christ and the fact that the life that we now live, it's not our own. The life we live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. Our life is hidden. Our life is actually Christ's. We receive that life of obedience to the Father. So not only is there no wrath, but there is also God's good pleasure toward you because you are in Christ. And finally the scene, which again points us to our great hope, the closing scene of this renewed and restored family. Because of Christ's mediation, we are now a renewed and restored family. We are not slaves. We are sons, not orphans, but we are adopted. In 1884, well over a hundred years ago, James Wells, who was a Scottish minister, he wrote a book called The Parables of Jesus. And in this book, he recorded a story of a man in Scotland who came across a very young girl who was carrying her younger brother, but a very large younger brother. And the man asked the little girl, aren't you tired? You know, like looking at this mammoth of a child and this little girl, like, aren't you tired? And she replied, a very famous statement that has been used in a song after this. She said, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. As if to say, uh, what else would I possibly do? The weight of him is irrelevant. He's my brother, course I'm gonna carry him. He ain't heavy, he's my brother. And the author of Hebrews says that because of Christ's ministry of suffering in his mediation, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers, his family. And the wonderful thing about our place in this story and the mediation Christ gives is that it is not only... Where Christ steps in our place on the cross to avert the wrath of God, to take our sin upon himself. And as we turn from our life, which was no life at all, and receive his, we receive his righteousness, we receive the status of sons. It's not only his mediatory work on the cross, but it is also his constant intercession for us until the day he presents us before his Father and our Father as blameless. Again, the author of Hebrews in chapter 7 talks about this and he says in verse 25, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is able to save completely. That uttermost is a word that combines all and perfect. All perfection. He's able to save in a completely perfect way Those who draw near through him to God because Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus rose again. He's alive now seated at the right hand of the Father and he lives to make intercession for the saints, for his brothers and sisters until he presents them before the Father. Christ right now mediates for us. He intercedes in our struggles, in our doubts. He intercedes. He upholds us. He intercedes before the Father, carries our burdens as if to say, this isn't heavy. These are my brothers, my sisters. This is not heavy. I'm God. I have an infinite capacity for burdens. Lay them on me. I will intercede for you. As we finish today, just adding a, Another layer onto this story, we read Romans 8, 31 and 34, a very famous uh, passage. And it's helpful to view this passage through the lens of Christ's mediatory work that we have just gone over, through the lens of this story, where from verse 31, Paul says, after uh, giving this beautiful picture of uh, us being completely justified, no condemnation, Um, and the golden chain of salvation, and he says, What shall we say about these things then? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is for you. He is on your behalf. He has shown that by laying down his rights as the other party and coming to mediate. What better evidence do we have that God is for us than the very next verse He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us. How will he not with him freely give us all things? How will he not? We know because he has sent his son. So who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. If the only judge in the whole world who could possibly ratify any charges against you has already sent his son to stand in your place. What charges could possibly be brought? The judge is already sentenced. He's already sentenced and he's sentenced in Christ. It's been paid. It is finished. And if you have received the sacrificial life of Jesus as your life, then that is your truth. There's no charges. So who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. You know, if someone was to come to God the Father and accuse you before him, the Father would say, what What condemnation is left? Christ has taken it upon Himself. There's no condemnation. What is this condemnation? I don't see any. Christ has taken it. What I see is my Son, my blameless Son, because the blood of that Son is so pure to cleanse us, so pure to take the condemnation of God, to take God's wrath upon Him. So there is no more condemnation. The Father has poured it all out upon His Son for God's children. And more than that, Jesus, He rose again to be at the right hand of the Father again, where He intercedes for us. That is a present tense, ongoing. Jesus intercedes for us, constantly upholding us. What a beautiful reality that we have.